Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Twenty miles west of Washington, D.C., lies Fairfax, Virginia, a small city with around 22,000. A 26-year-old student from India had come to the U.S. for her education. On a Saturday in September 2005, she spent the afternoon reading at a bookstore. The Washington Post reported that she lost track of time and when she noticed it had gotten dark outside, headed home. As she approached the front of her townhouse, out of the darkness, a man's voice asked her a question. She sensed there was something off about him, so she quickly answered and continued walking, picking up the pace. She heard his footsteps behind her, and as she approached her walkway, he pounced. Jessie Matthews' powerful arms lifted her up off the ground like she was a baby. Her purse dropped to the sidewalk. She screamed and fought him. He dragged her to a grassy area behind the townhouse and slammed her head into the ground. He punched her in the face, then placed his hands around her neck and began to sexually assault her. She continued to fight him, kicking and punching. He told her, I will kill you if you scream again. Let me do this and I'll let you go. She fell in and out of consciousness and during a lucid moment spotted a man walking by. She tried to yell out to him, but her voice betrayed her and only a small sound came out. Jesse was spooked, got up and ran, leaving his victim bloody and battered. Mark Castro, the man walking by, was heading to watch a boxing match at a friend's house when he spotted a dark figure. She looked nearly dead. He knocked on doors until he found someone and called police. The woman was transported to the hospital where a rape kit was conducted, including scrapings taken from under her fingernails. A police sketch described a black male, six feet tall with a medium build, a mustache and beard, between 25 and 35 years old. She survived the physical attack, but suffered from the trauma and returned to India. Jessie had gotten away with it, for now. Jessie grew up around Charlottesville and attended the University of Lynchburg from 2000 to 2002, where he played defense on the school's football team. While in university, he was accused twice in separate incidences of sexual assault against women. 
In both cases, the women declined to press charges. He dropped out of school and drove taxi for a while. In August 2012, he began working as a patient technician in the operating room at the university. Nine years later, 20-year-old Morgan Harrington was attending college at University Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. She was 5'6 with a willowy frame, long blonde hair, and blue eyes. One of her passions was music, from Bob Marley to Black Sabbath, she plastered her bedroom walls with posters. Morgan was close with both her parents, her mother Jill, a nurse, and her father Dan, a psychiatrist. Her father told the news leader that his sock drawer was filled with cards Morgan had written him over the years for every holiday, his birthday, Valentine's, and Christmas. On Saturday, October 17, 2009, Morgan was excited to be attending a Metallica concert with her friends. She asked her mom for advice on what to wear. She tried on a t-shirt and tossed it aside, and settled on a black t-shirt given to her by a friend that had Pantera in tan letters written across the front. She paired it with a black t-shirt, black leggings, and tall black boots. The concert was at the John Paul Jones Arena on the grounds of Virginia University in Charlottesville. Court records reveal that Morgan handed her car and its keys over to a friend so that she could drink before the concert. When they arrived, her friend kept the keys. They presented their tickets at the door and headed to their seats. Morgan handed what cash she had to a friend to purchase some Metallica memorabilia. Then at 8.30 p.m., she left her seat and headed to the washroom. No one saw it happen, but she fell on the cement concourse and ended up with a small abrasion on her chin, and later it would be determined that she hit her head and sustained a fracture. Whether it was from the head injury or the alcohol, Morgan didn't end up in the washroom, but instead walked out a door that took her outside. She tried to get back in, but it was against policy and security turned her away. Eighteen minutes later, a concerned friend called Morgan to see where she was. She told her she couldn't get back into the concert and would get a ride. Ten minutes later, she was spotted at a university parking lot. Another ten minutes went by, and she was seen at the Landing and Track parking lot, where cab drivers sat waiting for their fares. Among those cab drivers was Jesse, driving his 2004 Mercury van. A group of four exited his van, and one of them noticed Morgan's Pantera t-shirt and commented on it. Another ten minutes went by, and she was seen standing at the Copley Bridge with her thumb out hitchhiking. That night, just after midnight, when Morgan hadn't contacted her parents and hadn't arrived home, her dad started calling her friends, and realizing no one knew where his daughter was, he contacted police. The next morning, a lacrosse player from the university spotted a purse against the fence at Lanigan Track. 
Inside was Morgan's student ID, bank card, and her driver's license. Over the next few days, pieces of Morgan's cell phone were found. Its back cover had been removed and the battery was gone. Police treated her disappearance as a criminal investigation. They found no signs of a struggle where her purse and cell phone had been found. Over 100 tips had come in. Her parents gave police the t-shirt Morgan had tried on before the concert so that the tracking dogs had her scent. Her parents knew that Morgan hadn't run away. The Daily Press reported that they quickly believed their daughter had been abducted. They offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to her return. Metallica added another $50,000. Her parents distributed posters, put up billboards, and created a website to help bring their daughter home. State and local police, along with police from the university, searched for Morgan. There isn't a manual for parents whose child disappears. In their grief, Morgan's parents slept in her bed. They didn't realize that by doing so, they'd contaminated potential evidence. Luckily, they tucked her toothbrush and hairbrush into a plastic bag, just in case. As time went on, when they talked about Morgan, they tried not to use the word was to describe her, but it started to slip out between their lips. They couldn't hold back the reality of what might have happened. A massive search was organized with more than 500 volunteers, but no new clues were found. On November 11th, police received a call. Someone had found a black Pantera t-shirt a half mile from the university. The friend that had given Morgan the t-shirt identified it as belonging to her. It was sent to the Virginia Department of Forensic Science for Analysis, where a bloodstain confirmed it contained Morgan's DNA, along with the DNA of a male. Also discovered on the t-shirt was the hair from a dog. It was sent to a private lab in California that specialized in animal DNA. Police got a hit on the male DNA and matched it to the same male from the sexual assault in 2005. But his identity was a mystery. Police re-released the police sketch from 2005. Morgan's mother posted on their family website that her killer's luck would run out. And that corpse will not rest. Morgan wants justice. In January 2010, it had been just over three months since Morgan's disappearance, when farmer David Bass was on a tractor inspecting the fences on the 700 acres of his Anchorage farm when he spotted bones. The skeletal remains of Morgan had been found 10 miles from the concert. Her father said at a news conference that the remote location convinced him that it was someone local, and police agreed. 
only a local who knew about the farm, and the challenges of the terrain with streams and fencing would have been able to navigate it. Some of Morgan's clothing and jewelry were found, but not all. Her autopsy revealed the cause of death to be homicidal violence. Her bones had been shattered. She sustained a spiral fracture to her upper left arm, rib fractures, and a skull fracture. All occurred at or near the time of her death. But despite all the evidence and leads, Morgan's case went cold. Five years later, Hannah Graham, an 18-year-old student at the University of Virginia, the same university that Morgan had disappeared from, headed out for a Friday night of fun. Hannah was a gifted and intelligent student with a zest for life. She stood tall at 5'11", with long brown hair and blue eyes. Court records revealed that on the evening of September 12, 2014, Hannah joined her friends for dinner and a few drinks. Around 11 p.m., she decided to attend a college party. All the while, Hannah continued to drink, and her text messages became difficult to understand. Around midnight, it may be that the alcohol caught up with her, she wasn't feeling well and decided to go home. Her friend walked with her outside and offered to walk her home, but Hannah declined. At 12.45, she stumbled into a pub, where a bouncer spotted her and noticed she was impaired, and asked her if she needed help. She replied that she was okay and continued on. But in her impaired state, she took a wrong turn. Ten minutes later, she passed a gas station, then under a bridge towards the mall downtown. She zigzagged along the street, unable to walk in a straight line. That evening, Jesse was out partying at the bars. He visited a number of them, throwing back the alcohol and trying to pick up women. But his creepy approach and uninvited touching turned them off, and they rejected him. One woman he approached thought his eyes had a crazy look to them, and she left the bar to get away from him. Hannah texted a friend that she was lost. Then, minutes later, sent another text saying she was by the mall. Her last text, sent at 1 a.m., stated that she got stuck downtown. A passerby noticed Hannah and considered that she might be in distress and followed her. But minutes later, Jesse appeared, passed Hannah, turned around, caught up to her and put his arm around her. The passerby noticed the interaction and thought they knew each other and turned off. Jesse and Hannah entered a bar but left soon after. Back outside, Hannah broke away from him and continued walking. And he followed her. As they neared Jesse's bronze Chrysler, he unlocked the passenger door. A passerby heard her say, I'm not getting in that car with you. What is it, stolen? 
It's not known exactly what happened, but Jesse's cell phone went incognito. It remained on, but in airplane mode, as its signal did not bounce off any cell towers for almost four hours. Around 6.30 a.m., his car was spotted near an access road of Old Lynchburg Road. By 4.30 a.m., Hannah's friends hadn't heard from her and became concerned. Their calls to her weren't answered. This was strangely out of character for Hannah. Her parents were contacted and her friends reported her missing. An extensive search was launched for Hannah. The FBI and Virginia State Police were brought in along with bloodhounds. Detectives viewed the video surveillance at the mall from many of the stores and were able to track her movements. They noticed a man in the video following her and released the grainy video to the media. The man contacted police to explain he had followed her out of concern, but when a black man approached her and appeared to know her, he turned away and left. He gave police a description an African-American man with dreadlocks over six feet tall and 270 pounds. Jesse was an imposing and distinctive figure who was well known around the mall and it didn't take police long to identify him. Jesse walked into the police station and met with officers, then asked for a lawyer. Police didn't have evidence to arrest him, and he was allowed to leave. Meanwhile, more than 4,000 tips had come in, and over 1,000 volunteers searched for Hannah. Nine days after Hannah's disappearance, Jessie drove to his sister's house, boarded her car, then fled at a high rate of speed. Officers pursued him but his driving was so reckless they backed off and lost sight of him. But that gave police the ability to issue an arrest warrant for Jesse on two counts of reckless driving. Police publicly identified Jesse as a person of interest and released a poster with his picture. They obtained a search warrant for his car and found evidence that led them to his second search warrant for his apartment. Jesse was charged with the abduction with intent to defile. He was quickly arrested 1,300 miles away in Galveston, Texas. The forensic lab compared DNA from Morgan's t-shirt found years earlier to the DNA from Jesse's belongings. It was a match. And remember Jesse's van? It had new owners, but investigators managed to track it down. Forensic analysts discovered a document which behind the glove box from an auto body shop dated February 2010. It contained a phone number for Jesse, but it was after Morgan's murder. They contacted the auto body shop and discovered they had another phone number on file for Jesse from before her murder. Detectives obtained a search warrant for the phone records. They also received phone records from Jesse's employer at the taxi company. 
They analyzed all the records the night Morgan disappeared and noticed a lot of activity in the Charlottesville area up until 9.30 p.m. Then there was none. Silence for a whole 90 minutes. Then his work phone was turned back on and pinged off a tower near Anchorage Farm, the same farm where Morgan's body had been dumped. On October 18, 2014, a month after Hannah's disappearance, a sheriff's deputy searched a ravine behind an abandoned house in a remote area off Old Lynchburg Road and discovered her skeletal remains. The zipper on her top was undone, her jeans nearby with two holes and a leg turned inside out. An autopsy determined her cause of death was homicidal violence and that she had died from either strangulation or suffocation. Two days later, a Fairfax County grand jury indicted Jesse for the 2005 sexual assault. Investigators learned that Jesse had a dog named Popcorn back in 2009 and obtained a search warrant for Popcorn's hair. In November, Jesse pled not guilty to the three 2005 sexual assault charges. In June 2015, Jesse's victim flew from India to testify. After 10 years, she wanted the chance to face her attacker. Perhaps that's what convinced Jesse to change his plea to guilty. He entered an Alford plea, which meant he did not admit to the criminal act, but acknowledged that the prosecution had enough evidence to win the case. He was sentenced to three life terms. And that dog hair from Popcorn? Forensic testing confirmed it was a match to the hair found on Morgan's t-shirt. Hannah's DNA was found in Jesse's car and on a pair of shorts in his apartment both Jesse and Hannah's DNA was found. In March 2016, Jesse pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of abduction with intent to defile for the murders of Morgan and Hannah. In exchange for his plea, he was spared the death penalty. He was sentenced to four life terms. Hannah's mother Susan told the court, that her friends said that she would change the world. And she did, but at a terrible price. Morgan's parents, who are naturally a private couple, were drawn out of the shadow during their daughter's murder. A scholarship was established in her memory at Virginia Tech, and they created a website, helpsavethegirlnextdoor.com to raise awareness of the missing. Her mother took a trip to Zambia where she spread some of Morgan's ashes. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Carrie Farver. Her rival Liz was a woman obsessed, then scorned. 
She murdered Carrie, then impersonated her online for four years, torturing her family and friends with thousands of messages. Using digital forensics, detectives tracked down her killer. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effect and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.